Well, welcome. Like James said, my name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with everybody this morning. And um, I did this in the first service, so I'm going to ask you guys, who, because of the time change, you know, spring forward, we lose an hour, who went to bed early last night? I'm curious. Okay. See, my theory is kind of playing out. First service, the majority of people raised their hand. You know, I mean, they got to get up. Pretty much it was a 7.30 service for them. You know what I mean? So they had to go to bed an hour early so they could get up for it. Second service, I figured not as many people. I did go to bed early. Um, that was more just to kind of preempt my daughter in case she decided to get up early, <laughs> which failed. Um, but anyways, so like James said, two weeks from today, we have Easter Sunday. March 27th is what we're going to be celebrating and so this Sunday and next Sunday, what I want to do as we get close to Easter is I want to kind of take a look at the last week of Jesus's life. It started on Palm Sunday and then it ends on Easter. And I want to take a look at that week and see what we can learn about Jesus from that week. Because if you read through the gospel accounts, the four, really four biographies written about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read through those four um, records of his life, what you'll realize is there's a tremendous emphasis on the things that happened during Je Jesus' final week. Actually, one-third of everything that's written about his life is focused on the events and the things that he says during that final week. And so that brings up a question, well, why is there so much written? Why is there so much emphasis on this final week? And I think uh, one of the reasons for this is that final week, we refer to it as Holy Week, but in that final week, we get some of the most vivid pictures of what it means to love, what it means to show real love. The cross is looming large on the horizon. He knows on Friday he's going to die. We, when we read the story, we know what happens on Easter, but the people that were there in the middle of it, they weren't aware of everything that was going on. And so in the middle of that, with that on the horizon, Jesus shows us in very tangible ways over and over again what it means to love. What does this look like? How do we do this? So what we're going to do is we're going to take um, two weeks to look at this, because a lot of times what happens to us is we have the advantage of reading the story and knowing how it ends. We know it happens on Easter. We know what we celebrate. We ce celebrate Jesus coming back to life and proving that he was God in flesh and proving that he is the only one that can offer forgiveness and eternal life. We know that, and so we miss a lot of the drama. But for the people who are there living in the middle of it, I mean, this stuff, this was their life. These experiences were real to them. They're not just stories that they read in a book. So when Jesus rides in on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, on a donkey, the triumphal entry, and they're laying down palm branches and their jackets in front of him, and they're celebrating the arrival of the king, you got to imagine that the disciples, their emotions, it was, they were on cloud nine. They were really excited because finally Jesus is acting like the king that they knew that he was. And then he goes into the temple, and when he's in the temple, he's teaching, and he's just amazing the crowds because he's explaining stuff that they had always had difficulty with. He's taking difficult answer or questions, and he's, he's fielding those, and then he's giving these profound answers. He's talking about all kinds of stuff, and they're just in awe of how smart and how wise this guy is. I mean, we can't believe the stuff that he's saying. They're thinking to themselves. And then the religious leaders, well, they're frustrated. The self-righteous are frustrated because when Jesus comes, he starts to answer their questions because they're trying to trick him. Oh, well, we'll prove we're smarter than him. We'll catch him in a trap and prove that he's not who he says to be. And so they're asking him all these questions, but he doesn't just answer their questions. He answers them in such a way where he reveals the motivation of their heart. And so there's all this stuff going on in the city, all this excitement about who this guy is, but then the political tide starts to shift. And the leaders are now looking for a way to kill him. 
And so you can imagine the disciples, they're living this out. They're experiencing all this. They know the prophecies. They know what Jesus has said. But for one reason or another, they're not quite sure how it's going to work out. And so then Thursday comes, and he's arrested, and then he's falsely accused, and he's tried. And then on Friday morning, he's crucified. And then obviously, we look at it through Easter, and we look back on it. But you can only imagine that the people who lived it, after all this happened, they saw it play out. Jesus comes back. He says to them, hey, I want you to be my messengers. You imagine that it all of a sudden it clicked for them. And these experiences that they had became all that much more profound. And they realized that, oh, wow, this is how Jesus lived. We experienced it. We saw him do it. We know what was going on. This is how he lived. That means this is how he wants us to go and love other people. So because we miss a lot of the drama being at a distance of 2,000 years, what I want to do this week and next week is I want to kind of slow down and take a look at two particular stories inside of Jesus's final week. And what we're going to try to do is identify, well, what can we learn about real love from these stories? What can we learn about what Jesus shows us? So this week, we're going to look at love by serving. And then next week, we're going to look at love by forgiving. So Jesus's final week starts on Sunday, Palm Sunday. Then on Thursday of that week, he's been teaching in the temple for the week. On Thursday of that week, he gets his followers together, and he has a meal with them in the evening. It's the Last Supper. It's the most famous meal in all of human history. And he has this meal with them. He tells them, actually, he says, this is going to be my last meal with you. He, He knows everything that's getting ready to happen. So he has this meal. He gives them communion to do to remember him, the Lord's Supper. He says, okay, this is my body and the bread. This is my blood and the wine. And he's saying, do this in remembrance of the sacrifice that I'm giving for you. He does this at the dinner. And then later that evening, like I said, he's in the garden and he's praying and then he's betrayed and then he's arrested and they falsely accuse him. They make up stuff. And then because of all the political pressure, they put him to death. So he knows what's getting ready to happen after the meal. He knows what's coming. But he does something really interesting at the meal, and that's what I want to look at this morning. This is what it says, John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what's going on here? Like I said, a lot of times we, we miss what's going on in the story because of the distance, and we, we read it through the perspective of Easter, and so we don't We don't get all the drama and all the nuance. So what's going on here? So let's walk through this, see what we can learn about what true love is, what is real love, and what does Jesus teach us about serving in this passage. The first thing I want to point out is that we show love by serving. That's what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that we show love by serving. Look again what it says in the very first verse. It says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew everything that was going on around him. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, love is kind of an interesting word because love is one of those words where when we hear it, a lot of different images and ideas pop into our minds. Images and ideas based on our own experience, but a lot of it's shaped by our culture's definition of the word. So when we hear the word love, something pops into our mind. And usually what comes to mind is love is associated with a strong feeling. I feel really good about something, so I love that thing. That's why we can say that we love everything from 
ice cream to we love our pets to we love our families. And hopefully we don't love those all in the same degree. But we can say that because really what we're saying is we feel really good about it. And so we say stuff like, well, I fell in love. Almost like you were walking along and there was just a hole of this deep emotion in a pot and you just kind of fell into it and oh, I'm in love all of a sudden. But then we say, well, I fell out of love. Almost like that bucket tipped over and poured us out and then that strong feeling isn't there anymore so oh, I must not be in love. So usually when we say love, what we're talking about is we're talking about a really strong emotion or a strong feeling. And there's nothing wrong with having good positive feelings but when this passage says that Jesus loved, it's talking about a lot more than just a strong feeling. See, this verse, verse 1, it really serves as a header. This verse could be the header of the rest of the section. It's there, and then everything that comes after it explains what it means for Jesus to have loved them. So it's fortunate for us that the passage gives an example. Because if it just said Jesus loved, and then it went on and said something else, well, then we would be thinking, oh, well, he must love based on our definition of love. Well, it's fortunate, again, that it gives us an example. Jesus paints a very vivid picture. This is what real love is. But Jesus wants to just make sure that we understand it, because he paints the picture by serving, but we could interpret that a lot of different ways. And so Jesus, he paints the picture with his actions, but then later in the evening, after the meal, he's sitting there talking with his disciples, and he wants to make sure that they get it, so he clarifies it with them. And this is what he says later in this same chapter that we're reading, and it says, a new command I give you, love one another. So Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give you a new command, and it's to love one another. Now, if Jesus had stopped there, the disciples would have been really confused because the command to love is actually not a new command. It comes from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. What God said is he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So if all he said was a new command, I give you love one another, they'd have been like, well, that's not a new command, Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. What he does is he goes on, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he says this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So he's saying, the passage is saying, okay, Jesus loved his own until the end. And then it gives us this example of love. And then Jesus wants to clarify, okay, just as I've loved you, you're supposed to love other people. Now, is the new command that Jesus gives, is it to wash feet? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, no, because in that period of time, it made sense to wash people's feet because they walked around on dirt roads. Their feet were their primary mode of transportation. They had sandals, and so their feet would get really dirty. It made a lot of sense. It doesn't make as much sense for us today. So if washing feet isn't the command of how we're supposed to love, then what's Jesus doing when he says this? Well, what he's doing is he's expanding the definition of love. See, the old definition is love as you love yourself. That's what they got from the Old Testament. So when it said, love yourself, love your neighbors yourself, they heard, okay, love as I love myself. So however I love myself, self-love, that's the measure of real love. When what Jesus does is, he, because he understands that they've misunderstood this, he says, he gives them this new definition. He says, love as I have loved you. Really what he's saying is, I'm going to show you how to show real love. See, that's what the difference is. The difference is, is that self-love is measured primarily based on how we feel, where real love is measured based on service. See, if I ask you this morning, do you love yourself? Well, you're probably going to start to think, well, how do I feel about myself right now? If you feel good about yourself, then your answer might be positive. If you don't feel good about yourself, your answer might be something else. You don't hear me asking, when I ask, do you love yourself? You don't hear me asking, are you taking care of yourself? You don't hear me asking, did you eat anything in the last 24 hours? Did you comb your hair? Did you brush your teeth? 
Did you take a shower? Are you taking care of yourself? You don't hear that. I mean, those things are kind of assumed. We, we, no matter how we feel about ourselves, usually we take care of ourselves. We keep ourselves in good order. We make sure we're fed. We make sure we're hydrated. We take care of ourselves. So when you hear me ask the question, you don't hear me asking, how are you taking care of yourself? You hear me asking, well, how do you feel about yourself? So what Jesus is doing in giving us this new thing is he's saying, okay, the point is not how you feel about yourself. Just like you do the basic things to take care of yourself, to show love to other people, that's what you need to do. The point is not your feeling. The point is you taking action and actually serving the people who are around you. And just to make it perfectly clear, we have the statement, Jesus loved them to the end, a new command I give you, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then right in the middle there, we've got an example of Jesus serving to communicate to the people that are around him, hey, I love you. So Jesus gets up from the meal, he gets this bowl, he takes off his outer clothing, he takes this rag, and then he serves them in a very practical and tangible way. The lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is we need to show people that we love them by serving them. Now, I'll admit for me, um, this is not always the easiest thing. I don't just walk around and see, oh, well, there's a need, I can meet that, and oh, there's a need. A lot of times I'm like, well, I don't even know how to serve people in these different situations. Well, a good place to start is just with a question. Hey, how can I help? Can I serve you in any way? Is there any way I could contribute to what's going on? Just start asking questions and looking for ways to serve because in that you're going to have opportunities to communicate that you really love people. So we need to start asking questions. And then when we see stuff, we need to take advantage of those opportunities and communicate to people through our actions that we really love them. The second thing that Jesus teaches us in this passage is that no one is off limits. Now, from time to time, I would venture to guess that most of us in the room have had people in our lives, people we've known that we didn't want anything to do with. People who have hurt us, people they've offended us, maybe we just disagree with them, maybe we just find them really annoying, maybe we think we're better than those people, so we don't want anything to do with those people. We avoid them. When they walk in the room, we get up and we head in the other direction. It could be for one reason or another, but we can probably think of a situation where this happened. I mean, for me... um, one of, my, one of the times that I've done this, unfortunately there's more than one, but one of the times that I did this um, was before my wife and I got married, um, there was a situation. My wife and I joke around, my wife Allie and I joke around that um, our dating relationship, it was not the smoothest. And so what we say is we dated and then we broke up and then we dated and then we broke up and then we dated and then we got married. And um, one of those times where we dated and then we broke up, I was pretty upset because I actually never broke up with her. She only ever broke up with me. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Looking back on it, it was a good move. She did the right thing. But at the time, I wasn't happy. So she breaks up with me. I'm not happy with her. My feelings are hurt. I'm mad. Now, it's kind of ironic because I wanted to be in a relationship with her, but I was mad at her, so I didn't want anything to do with her. You would think, okay, you still want to be in a relationship with her, so you put your best foot forward, but no, I'm mad. So I don't want anything to do with her. So what I did actually was uh, this one time, um, I was hanging out with some friends, and she walked into the room. I didn't know she was coming, and she just she walks into the room. As soon as I see her, I just stand up, and I turn around, and I walk right out. I mean, again, you'd think, how childish, Elliot, but you'd think, you want to be in a relationship with this girl, like, why don't you, like, you know, put your best foot forward, like, put on a smile, you know, try to act like, hey, I'm encouraged to see you. It's great to see you. No, I, I was mad. She had hurt my feelings. She was justified in not wanting to date me because I was being an idiot at the time, but because I was mad, I don't want anything to do with her, so I walked out of the room. But often we do this in different ways. I mean, it could be with the people that we say that we care the most about, the people that are the most 
meaningful in our lives, but they upset us in some way or we disagree. And so we're just like, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this person. And so then we go about avoiding them. That's actually what makes what Jesus did at this meal that much more shocking. Because if that's our tendency, check out, check out how Jesus handles this situation at the dinner. It says in verse 2, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So at the meal, sitting there, is the guy who betrays Jesus. And Jesus is not unaware of this. Jesus knows that what's already happened is Judas has gone to the high priest, and for 30 pieces of silver, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. Jesus knows that about Judas. He knows that that's about the equivalent of $20,000. So the price on his head was $20,000, and he knows that this guy sitting at the table has already collected it. Jesus actually tells the people at the table, hey, the guy who's going to betray me is here with me. The disciples didn't quite know what he meant, but Jesus was so aware of it. He actually says to Judas when Judas gets up to leave, he says, go and do it quickly. Because Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that later that evening he would be praying and Judas would walk up with a mob. And when Judas comes up to Jesus in the garden praying, what Judas does is he goes up to Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek. He told the people he was with, he said, hey, the guy that I kiss on the cheek, he's the one that you're supposed to arrest. That's how you're going to know. So the whole time he's putting on this front, I'm your friend, buddy, buddy, gets up close to him. And then the whole time he's looking for an opportunity to stab Jesus in the back, to turn him over and betray him. I mean, think about that. That guy's sitting at the table, and Jesus, this is not a surprise to Jesus. He's completely aware that all of this has taken place and is getting ready to take place. It's not a surprise to him. But think about this with me for a minute. Did you know that the name Jesus or Judas was actually a popular boy name among Jewish families? They would oftentimes name their sons Judas because that name Judas, it comes from, it's the Greek word, but it means Judah. And if you know the history of Israel, you know that the line of Judah is a line, a tribe that has to do with royalty and nobility. It has to do with faithfulness to God. It's from where the promised Messiah was going to come. So just like what we'll do with our kids, we'll name our kids after a family member who we hope that they emulate, or maybe a famous person or somebody that we look up to and we hope that the kid will be like that someday. So a lot of boys would get named Judas because their parents were hoping that they would be like this royal line that the line of Judah was. So this was a very common name to name your kid Judas. There's actually other people in the New Testament with the name Judas. There's a disciple named Judas. We usually refer to him as Jude or Thaddeus, but his name was Judas. The guy who wrote the book Jude in the New Testament, if you look at it in the Greek, his name is Judas. Now, over time, what's happened is we call him Jude. It's kind of a nickname. It's kind of like Robert and Bob. We call him by the nickname just to not associate him with the guy that betrayed Jesus. But that guy, the guy who ruined the name for all of human history, he's sitting there. I mean, and, and so this week, I, I was thinking about it. I don't know anybody named Judas. I've never met anybody named Judas. Super popular name. Now, I don't know anybody. So I looked it up online. I went on Facebook because there's always, you know, that's a super scientific way to research things. <laughs> typed it in on Facebook. Nobody came up that I knew with the name Judas. So then I went on another website. It tells you percentages of people in the U.S. that have a name or how common a name is. When I typed in the name Judas, again, very, very popular name, but then I typed it in. What it said is Judas is a very rare first name. So I wanted to compare it. Okay, so let's compare it to some of the other disciples. I typed in the disciple John, number two most common name for a male in the U.S., Matthew, number 25, Andrew, number 35, Peter, number 43. The other disciples, their names have stayed up there. Their names at the time might not have even been that common, 
but now they've become very common over time. But the name Judas has almost completely dropped off the map. I think where you, you get where I'm going here, sitting at the table at the meal with Jesus is the guy who in all of human history nobody wants to be named after. And Jesus serves that guy. I mean, think about that. If that doesn't blow your mind, I mean, when I sat and just thought about that, I was like, no one is off limits. Jesus made that very clear. When it comes to serving and comes to communicating love, nobody's off limits. I wonder what it was like for the disciples when they thought back about, about this event. I wonder if after Jesus came back from the grave and he explains to them what they're supposed to do, their mission, if they're sitting around at dinner and one of them says, hey, remember when Jesus washed our feet? Remember that? Remember how he explained to us that that's how we show real love? I wonder if one of the other disciples is like, yeah, you remember Judas was there? I mean, to be there and experience that and see Judas betray Jesus later that evening and to see Jesus be brutally killed and then to see him rise from the grave and then to know that all the while Jesus was aware of this and Jesus still washed the man's feet. I mean, how powerful of an example for him to give us of what real love is. When it comes to real love and when it comes to serving, no one's off limits. The third point is this, no job is beneath you. Let me read again what it says, starting in verse 3, John chapter 13. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So this, this third verse in this passage is really interesting to me because it, it's kind of wedged between Judas is at the meal and then we have Jesus getting up and serving. It's kind of an interesting verse, and it says, like I just read, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what's this saying? Well, what it's making clear is that Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus knew he was God in flesh. Jesus knew the power he had. He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was returning to. He knew that he was the most powerful one in the entire universe, and that makes this next verse all that much more surprising when it says, so he got up from the meal and he began to wash his disciples' feet. Everything is under his power. He's the top. You can never get any higher than God. And yet he decides, okay, I'm going to serve. But he doesn't just serve by doing anything. I mean, it's not just kind of an old, meaningless task. This is actually the thing that he chooses to do is rather surprising. It was a very lowly job. I read one thing that said it was actually so degrading that a master could not require it of a Jewish slave. You had to have somebody of another, in this time when this is written, they had to have somebody of another background or another ethnicity do it. They couldn't have a Jew do this job. That's how degrading this was to them. That's the job that Jesus decides to do. I mean, just kind of think about what it would have entailed. I mean, for us, like, we wear shoes, we have socks on, we have these nice little things that clip our toenails. We take regular showers and baths to keep ourselves clean. We walk around on carpet, on pavement. We're not walking on dirt roads. In Jesus' time, they didn't have any of that. They're walking around open-toed sandals. They're walking on dirt and sandy paths. I think the closest I can um, imagine to think of to compare this to is several times when I've been overseas in different third-world countries when the paths are just dirt and there's trash all along the side, and there's even sewage oftentimes. I mean, I think that's probably the closest image of what they were living and walking in, and that's what Jesus says. I'm not trying to gross anybody out. I mean, in first service, I had a few people who I thought was going to faint when I started to describe what Jesus got down and did, but I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm just trying to paint the picture of this was a job that nobody wanted to do, 
And so what Jesus does is he gets up and he's the one that does it. It says he takes off his outer clothing. I mean, I think that symbolizes that he knew this was going to be dirty. He knew how dirty this was going to be. So he's like, okay, I'm going to take my jacket off and I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to get my hands dirty here. You got to imagine the disciples were shocked. Actually, if you read on, Peter actually is so shocked. He says, no way. There's no way I'm going to let you wash my feet. Because they're sitting there going like, this guy is our king, this guy's the promised Messiah, and now he's doing this job that only a servant would do? No way am I going to let him do it. They were shocked by this action that Jesus took. Now, I want to note this. I don't think what Jesus is saying here, when he's saying nothing's beneath you, I don't think he's saying go find the grossest thing you can think of and serve by doing that. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying here is if it needs to be done, do it. And it doesn't matter what it is. And you know what? Go as far as to be the person that raises your hand to volunteer. The other disciples were there. They knew what was customary. They knew the custom was you go into somebody's home and they have a bowl and a slave or a servant washes your feet. They knew that that's what was customary. They were aware that it hadn't been done. They're all sitting there at the table. And they're, they're not like sitting at the table like us. They're, they're kind of laying there. So their feet are close to one another. Yeah, a whole new element of gross. They were aware of what's going on. Well, why didn't one of them raise their hand and say, you know what, I'll do it, I'll serve. Jesus is the one that says, okay, I'm going to volunteer and do this task that nobody else wants to do. That's the example that he's leaving for us. Nothing's beneath us. We're willing to do anything that needs to be done, and we'll even raise our hand and say, hey, I'll do that. I have a friend, and he's a really good example of this. Um, He worked at a coffee shop down by the beach, and when he worked down there, it um, it was a high traffic coffee shop. They'd have a lot of people going through there. And by the end of the day, I mean, you can imagine all the tourists, the beachgoers, other people coming through. By the end of the day, their bathrooms, nobody wanted anything to do with the bathroom. And the employees, it was one of those things, you know, where the employees, if you work the closing shift, you just got your fingers crossed. I'm just hoping I'm not the one that's assigned that task. Well, he is a shift lead. That means he determines who does what job. Well, he decided, okay, whenever I work closing, I'm just going to volunteer to be the one that goes in and cleans the bathroom. I'm going to serve the rest of my employees. I could tell them to do it. You know, I, I have the authority to just say, hey, this is what we need to do to close down. But he said, you know what? I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to say, hey, guys, I'll clean the bathroom. You guys do this other stuff. Very, very simple thing that he did. He did what other people didn't want to do to communicate to the rest of the employees that he cared about them. What I've noticed about that guy's life over time, I've watched him for quite a while now, and what I've noticed about him is people don't question if he loves them. People know he loves them. Because over and over again, time after time, he's willing to do the things that others might say, oh, that's beneath me. There's no way I'm going to do that. He's willing to do those things, very tangible, practical things to communicate to other people that he loves them. See, my friend, he's not concerned with how high can I get? What, what, what level of success can I get to? How can I achieve something that people will look at me and be like, oh, wow, that's so impressive? That's not his goal. His goal is, hey, my, my king came and died and left me an example of serving. And so I want to love other people by serving them. So if that means that it needs to be done, I'll do it. And I'll even raise my hand and say that I'm willing to do it. That's the example that Jesus left for us to follow. Nothing's beneath us. But we show people real love, true love, by doing the jobs that other people don't want to do. So let's review really quickly. Where have we come from? Well, we've learned that we show love by serving. That's what Jesus teaches us at this in this story. We've learned that no one is off limits and that nothing is beneath us. So that's what we've learned. But why does this matter? Why is this so important? I mean, we, we know what we're supposed to do and we have an example of how to do it. 
Well, I think that this is important to know why, because we often want to know why. I mean, we've got the command, you know, John 13, 34, a new command, I give you love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I mean, we can just kind of recite that, and okay, well, Jesus commanded it, and we're Christ followers, we're Christians, by definition, we do what Jesus tells us to do. So he commanded it, so we better do it, and he gave us this really good example, so we might as well do it. But chances are, over time, we're really going to start to struggle with this. Yeah, why am I the one that does this? Well, I don't want to do this. What's the point? I don't get the big point in this. I mean, we're, we're, we want to know what the big picture is. How does this contribute to the big picture? I mean, think about work. I mean, we're, at, we're on a job. We're getting paid to do work. And oftentimes, I can tell you from my own experience, either being the employee or even being in management, is the experience is if, if an employee, if somebody is working and they don't know how it fits in the big picture, those tasks or those things that are assigned to do, they're probably going to struggle with it. Because if they're just going to sit there and go, I, I don't want to do this. I don't know why this is important even though they're getting paid to do it. I mean, that's just kind of the way that we work. So Jesus knows this is the way we work. The command and the example isn't enough. So what he says, says this in the very next verse, he says, by this, if you love people like this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. See, when we start loving people by serving them, when we look for opportunities, and then when we see them, we take advantage of it, and we show them real, real love. When we communicate through our actions that no one's off limits, we're willing to serve anybody, even our enemies. We're not limiting our serving to the people we get along with or the people that we like. When we start to do that, when we go as far as to do the jobs that other people don't want to do, and we're even the ones that raise our hands and say, hey, I'll do it. It needs to be done. I'll do it. When we start to do that, what we're communicating to people is that we really love them. And that real love it does two things. The first thing that it does is love will soften even the hardest of hearts. And the second thing it does is it points people to Jesus Christ. Now, what happens with so when someone with a soft heart starts to look at Jesus? Somebody whose heart has been touched by love, they start to look at who Jesus claims to be and what Jesus did when he was on earth. Well, what that does is... It, in our, in our culture, in our society, there are a lot of different ideas about Jesus. There are ideas that, well, Jesus was a good man. Um, Jesus was maybe a prophet, but probably kind of like Muhammad. He came and he had a message from God. Or, you know, maybe he's a spiritual leader. He's got some good principles for us. Maybe kind of like Buddha. Like, he gives us some, like, you know, general guidance for life is what Jesus gives. I mean, these are some ideas. And you've got what the Bible says. The Bible says he's the son of God. The Bible says something very different. But when you've got somebody, they've been touched by love. And then they start to say, well, who is this Jesus? What that means is that they have the opportunity to see the God who is moved by love. He decided to take action instead of leaving us in the situation that we're in. They have the opportunity to see the one who came to earth as a servant, who showed us in very tangible ways over and over again that he cares for us and how deeply he loves us. They have the opportunity to see the one who didn't just give us a roadmap and say, hey, if you do these 10 things, you've got a chance of getting to me. But they see the one who took on a human body and he came and he said, I'm the way, follow me. See, when people's hearts have been touched by love and that hard heart starts to crack open, what happens is, is they have the opportunity to see Jesus Christ, see the most powerful one in the universe who came to earth to meet our biggest need. They get to see the God who came as a servant so that we could be saved. I mean, what an amazing opportunity we have when we love other people and we serve them like this. I mean, the why, why do this? Why do this? Because this is one of the ways that we show Jesus, the God. We show Jesus to other people, the God who transformed us. 
the, the thing that we claim to have experienced, this God who saved us and forgave our sins and has given us an eternal hope and a future, we have the opportunity to share that love and to show that to other people in very tangible, practical ways by saying, you know what? I'm not just going to say that I love this person. I'm going to show them I love them through my actions. And I'm not going to limit my love to the people that I like or the people that I get along with, but I'm going to love everybody, even the people that nobody else wants to love. And you know what? I'm even, if it needs to be done, I'm willing to do it. No strings attached. It needs to be done. I'll do it. And I'll even raise my hand and volunteer to do that. When we start to love people like that, just like the example that Jesus gave, it touches their hearts, it opens them up, and it gives them an opportunity to see who Jesus is. That's why this matters so much. It's why this is such a big deal. I've got a few next steps to kind of help us practice this as we move forward from here. The first one, these are on your connection card, by the way. James highlighted this earlier. The first one is to serve someone. I'm sure this next week there are going to be all kinds of opportunities that we have. We interact with people, opportunities to serve. So look for ways to serve people. Maybe you know of an opportunity already. Just go ahead and plan to do it. Plan to serve somebody in some way. Another one that I encourage you to do is um, we have this thing. It's an insert in your program. It's the U version. Um, it's a reading plan that we're doing for Easter. So starting tomorrow, the two weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be doing a reading plan to kind of help prepare our hearts and our minds um, to remember what Jesus did on Easter and to celebrate that. So you can take this. It gives you a link. Also, you can download the app, um, do it on your phone. If you are going to do the reading plan, if you could just check that box under the next step, the Easter reading plan, we'd love to know how many people are doing this along with us. That would be a lot of fun. And then my final next step is just like James said, um, Easter's coming up in two weeks, and we have four services. We've got our regular three on Sunday morning, and then we've got the five o'clock service in the evening. So I'd encourage you to invite somebody um, to Easter. It's going to be a great message. I've already seen what Bevan's working on for that Sunday, and so I'd encourage you to invite somebody to Easter here at Seabreeze. And then a quick final announcement before I pray. Um, our growth groups, our next round of growth groups, actually the sign-ups start next Sunday. So if you're in a growth group right now, you know it's coming to the end, and we're going to take a break over Easter and um, spring break. So we're going to take this break. Sign up start next Sunday, March 20th, and then groups start meeting April 10th. They're going to meet for eight weeks. They're going to get out before the kids get out of school, so it's a good amount of time. It's going to be a lot of fun. Some of the studies are going to be based on what we learn here on Sunday mornings. Others will be more specific to what individual groups want to do, but it'll be a lot of fun. Opportunities to sign up for that will be next Sunday. So if you'll join me in prayer, um, the band will come up and we'll sing our final song together. Jesus, I thank you that you, um, seeing us in the mess that we made, didn't leave us in this mess. But you came from heaven to earth, and you took on a body, and you lived a perfect life, setting us an example for how we're supposed to live. And then you died in our place on the cross. The death that we should have died, you died for us. And then you rose on Easter, proving that you are, in fact, God in flesh, and that you and you alone are the only one that can offer forgiveness of sins and restore our relationship. So Jesus, I thank you for doing that. I, I ask that these examples that you gave us during your final week, you, you knew what was coming and you still lived this way. I pray that these examples that we learn about and we look at, that they wouldn't just be fun stories, but just like the people who were a part of them, it impacted them. I pray that it would impact us. And I pray that instead of just saying stuff to people or giving them a pat on the back, we would actually show them how much we love them by sacrificially deciding, you know what, I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to inconvenience myself for this other person. I'm going to serve them. 
I'm going to show them that I love them. And God, I pray through doing that, you would open all kinds of hearts to look at who you are and what you've done. I thank you for this morning and bringing us all here, and I pray that you would bless us. In your name, amen.